I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome. To Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 15. Today's show is dedicated to a very special person, and you know exactly who you are. Enough said. Today we're going to listen to the second part of Jack Shade in the Forest of Souls, with a short piece to round it off at the end. Jack Shade in the Forest of Souls was written by Rachel Pollock, and you can read all about her on the Triple F website, as well as follow her link. So just to remind you of what happened last week, Jack Shade, consummate gambler and traveller to other realms, had taken on a new client. A recently widowed man, William Barlow, has been experiencing some odd visions since his wife died, and, having found Jack's card in amongst his wife's possessions, has asked Jack to help her move on. Jack has agreed to do so, and is about to enter a non-linear location through a doorway on 54th Street in New York. And now, let the story continue. Jack Shade in the Forest of Souls by Rachel Pollock, Part 2 The handle was hot, like the door to a furnace. And when Jack opened it, all he could see was a red glow so intense his face felt on fire. As soon as he stepped through, however, he felt the dirt and leaves under his feet. A cold wind hit him. He gasped. As he always did, for knowledge of what's to come doesn't help much in the forest. It wasn't really cold, just as before it wasn't really hot. If he'd had to guess, the actual temperature he would have said around 60. But it felt like his bones would freeze so tight his toes would snap off. Jack paid no attention and only took a piece of red chalk from his jeans, 
marked J.S. on the door, which stood incongruously all by itself, surrounded by trees. Jack made his mark graffiti-style, with black letters and a flourish at the end. Almost as soon as he finished, the door just faded away, and all that was left were trees. Endless trees. All sizes, all shapes. A few with dusty leaves or yellowed needles, but most bare, the branches black and twisted. Unlike in actual woods where the trees grow densely together, blocking your view, here each tree stood by itself, as if they refused any contact, so that Jack felt like he could see for miles and miles, with no horizon, only twisted trees forever and ever. It was twilight. Dim, the only color, the faint fire that wound in and out of the branches like pale, weightless ribbons. Jack Shade closed his eyes and took a breath, and when he looked again, everything had changed. A department store. He was in some kind of large store, standing in the watch and jewelry section, looking out toward various clothing sections for men, women, and children as shoppers moved in and out of mannequins displaying middle-of-the-road clothes, the kind you might see in suburban malls. People in winter jackets rushed about, some checking lists as if that observation triggered a next step. Red and green ribbons appeared on the walls and displays, while voiceless holiday music whined through the noise of the crowd. It all looked so real, except for wisps of flame that snaked through the shoppers and the mannequins. Jack moved slowly, careful not to touch anything, the people, the displays, the clothes on the racks. He knew only one thing for certain, that Alice had to be somewhere nearby, for part of the reason for the cut on his arm was to act as a kind of homing signal to bring him to that part of the non-El forest where Alice was trapped. But he couldn't begin to summon her until he could identify the trees in all this crowd of goods and shoppers. He kept looking, staring, until suddenly he realized he was doing it all wrong. You don't look in the forest, you listen. Jack was staring round corners and through the crowds, and even under the counters in the unconscious hope he would spot Eugenia. Unconscious and useless. This wasn't his dream, after all, and if his daughter was even in this part of the forest, she would show herself only if she wanted to. Right now, he was here for Alice. He said out loud, just to be sure, Jeannie, if you're anywhere around and you want to show yourself, I want to see you. Right now I've got a job to do, but I'm here. I love you. Then reluctantly, he closed his eyes. He took a deep breath. Another. On the third exhale, he heard the forest. Voices. Whispers. A roar of whispers. Waves and surges of grief and loneliness. Hurricanes of rage. Jack screamed, fell on all fours where he shook wildly like a terrified dog, and it was all he could do to keep from howling. But when the voices subsided, enough that he could stand up and open his eyes, he knew. 
the mannequins. The trees were the mannequins. The plastic bodies in absurd poses. Prisons for the dead. Jack could see it in the blank, smooth faces, where underneath the plastic eyes, something pulsed. He could hear or just feel the whispers in the rigid, half-opened mouths. Jack slipped his knife from its sheath and in one stroke sliced open the left sleeve of his shirt. Years ago, when he was first learning, Jack had laughed and asked his teacher why he couldn't just roll it up. Oh, Jack, she'd said, carefree Jack, don't you know you have to sacrifice something, even if it's just a shirt? These days, Jack figured he'd sacrificed more than enough in his years as a traveler. But you didn't mess with tradition. He held up his exposed arm like a signpost, the cut bright and shiny. Slowly, he turned around like a lighthouse lamp. I'm looking for Alice Barlow, he shouted. Then, Alice, I'm carrying your mark, your memory. Show yourself. I've come from the old world to release you to the new. You don't have to stay here anymore. I'm here to help you. Alice Barlow, show yourself. For a long time, nothing happened, and Jack wondered if somehow, some way, he'd made a mistake. Why didn't she respond? Usually, all the dead wanted was to get free of their tree prison. Could he possibly have screwed up the action and took himself to the wrong part of the forest? He thought back over everything he'd done, and it was all correct. He was sure of it. There was Barney's odd reaction when he first saw him, but that was just... Then he saw it. In the men's sportswear section, a mannequin dressed in jeans and a checked shirt, and one of those denim jackets with a corduroy color gave off a faint, pulsing light. Jack walked over to it, still with his arm up, and held so that the cut faced the mannequin's face. Hello, Alice he said gently. I'm very glad to meet you. I've been searching for you for some time. The mannequin, the tree, didn't move, of course. But Jack thought he saw a glow of heat in the smooth plastic and even the sweatshop polyester clothing. It's okay, Jack said. I know you're scared and angry. That's always the way it is. But now I'm here, Alice, and it's all going to end. Here's what I'm going to do, Alice. I'm going to bring you out, and once you're free, I will open a gate so you can leave here. Are you ready, Alice? Not just a glow this time, but a real flash of light. It lasted only a second, but there was no mistaking it. He nodded. Thank you, Alice. Thank you for showing yourself. Without turning his back on her, he moved a few feet away, far enough that he could draw a circle with his chalk on the floor in front of the mannequin. Jack sometimes thought that in all his traveler training, the hardest thing had been to learn to freehand a circle. Now he looked at his work and couldn't help but smile a moment. Taking Alice as due south, 
He marked the compass points, then drew various signs in the cross quarter. Using the various points to guide him, he found the circle's center, where he drew an eight-pointed star. It was a little awkward because he had to make sure he didn't actually step inside the circle or touch the rim. This is your mark, Alice, he said. This is where you'll go. It won't be long now. He stood up and took a position behind North so he would face the mannequin with the circle between them. He reached in his jeans pocket and took out the silver bracelet he'd worn in Alice's bed and held it up high. Slight shocks ran from the bracelet to the cut in his arm, but he ignored them. Remember this, Alice, he said, his eyes fixed on the blank plastic face and the fire he could sense under it. It holds the genuine you. Your existence here isn't real, Alice. This is real. I'm going to open a kind of door. You're going to feel it more than see it. And when you do, you'll know the bracelet is calling to you. Just like I've been calling to you. I'm going to start now, Alice. Are you ready? As Jack leaned over to lay the bracelet on the chalk star, a strange smell almost made him stumble. For a few seconds, the air stank of dead meat and wet fur of layers of urine and feces, some kind of animal den, large like a bear. Was that how Alice experienced her imprisonment? Not what Jack saw, not a mannequin or even a tree, but the prey of some wild animal? The smell faded, and with it, Jack's attempts to figure out what it meant. It was time to do what he'd come for. Jack pulled out his knife and raised it in his left hand to point at the ceiling. Then, as hard as he could, he brought it down to slice the air inside the circle. Alice Barlow, he shouted. The way is open. All around him, the shoppers, just props after all, paid no attention, but continued to chatter and check their lists and hold clothes up against their bodies. The music, however, crackled and sputtered out halfway through Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Within a range of twenty feet or so, the mannequins all turned dark, then suddenly flashed with light so brightly Jack had to shield his eyes to prevent retina burn. He kept his focus on the blank, manly face of Alice Barlow's prison. The expression didn't change, of course, or the pose, but the whole thing shuddered and swayed as if something was shaking it from the inside. Slowly, something began to emerge. First, a vapor so fine Jack wasn't sure he was really seeing it. Then, more pronounced, an ooze that came out of the mannequin so slowly it might have been sweating. The sweat turned to a thick mass, the colorless gelatin that a French traveler in the 19th century called ectoplasm. Jack held his breath. This part was tricky, for the dead person could emerge as anything, and he had to be ready to welcome it. Usually, they ended up as 
who they were in life, though sometimes idealized with bigger breasts, say, or poutier lips, often naked, but sometimes so dressed up they looked like they'd stepped out of the Downton Abbey. But sometimes they emerged as something else, entirely a different person, some other kind of creature, even an object. Once Jack brought forth a child who died too young, but instead of a boy, there was a school composition book full of handwriting in some alphabet Jack had never seen. This time, it was going exactly right. The ecto was firming up, becoming recognizable, first as arms and legs, with overly long hands and toes, then a torso, then, at last, the head, and it was her, Alice Barlow. She came out naked, thin, the body all tensed, the eyes squeezed shut, if afraid to look, the skin darker and rougher than in her photos, the hair longer and wilder, the muscles in her arms and legs more defined. She wasn't quite the same, but she was who and what she was supposed to be, and that was all that mattered. Jack let out a breath he hadn't known he was holding unsure why this woman he'd never met could have such a powerful effect on him. With a sudden violent twist, Alice broke fully from her mannequin prison and pitched forward into the circle where she landed on all fours. She trembled wildly like a terrified dog. Jack became aware that the whispers had risen all around him, drowning out the fake sounds of the store. If the souls in their trees could witness this, what were they thinking? Did they know or sense someone had broken free? Were they proud, hopeful, jealous? He looked down at the only one who mattered. Hello, Alice, he said. Welcome back. She didn't get up, didn't move from her spot. Only her head moved, tilting up to look at him. And as it did, so it changed. The cheekbones stood out so sharp they almost cut through the skin. The eyes became bigger, the pupils flat and dark, the chin narrowed, became almost triangular, the lips stretched thin. Then she opened her mouth. The teeth had grown long and sharp. Jack stared at her. No idea what to do. Alice! He said, it's going to be okay. She sprang at him, leaped from all fours directly at his face. No, not his face, his throat. The long, sharp teeth nearly tore out his trachea. Jack grabbed her. He wasn't sure where and somehow managed to fling her wildly twisting body away from him. He tried to get her back in the circle where he might hope to contain her, but she managed to break away and land on all fours just to the left of it. Immediately she spun around to face him again, shaking her head, growling. Strangely, the Muzak came back, and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer bounced cheerfully above the snarls of the creature on the floor. Jack reached up to touch his neck and face and feel the damage. As soon as he did, 
so he forgot all about blood and wounds, for instead of his own tight skin and scars, his fingers found a soft fleshiness. Wrinkled, middle-aged skin over sagging jowls. And in that instant, with Alice about to spring again, Jack knew what had happened. He understood, finally too late, what William Barlow had done to him. In The Traveler's Bestiary, or Guide to Nonlinear Fauna, as Jack's teacher once called it, there were many pages, files in the smartphone version, devoted to Beasts of Fury. This is what Alice Barlow had made of herself. Enough human to hold on to her purpose, and enough animal to rip Jack apart. And when she was finished, would she realize what had happened, what her husband had done to her, as well as Jack? Twice more, Jack managed to fling her away, and both times she landed on all fours and turned right around to bare her teeth before her next leap. Both times, Jack considered running, but knew he'd never make it. The watch and jewelry section was only twenty to thirty yards away, but it would take time and energy to open the door. And Alice had cornered the market on both. Powered by all the rage in existence, from jealous lovers to hungry babies to dying stars. A fury could go on forever but not Jack Shade. Everything he did in the forest, even just seen through its masks, drained him. One more time, he could throw her off once more, maybe, and then she would take him. Goodbye, he whispered. Goodbye to everyone, his daughter most of all, but also Irene, Mr. Dickens. To Ray, who'd tried to warn him but couldn't follow him into the forest, and even the blindfolded Norwegian girl. And Alice, whom he'd tried to help, but got it wrong. As if she could feel his thoughts, Alice shook wildly, screamed, and threw herself through the air. Jack braced himself. His clothes were in shreds, his arms and chest bleeding. Alice leaped, arms straight out, clawed fingers spread wide for greatest impact, teeth bright in the holiday lights. And then she stopped, as if she'd hit an invisible net set up by some fury hunter. She twisted wildly in midair, screaming in frustration. No, not a net, and not invisible. A yellow cashmere scarf had come off a counter-display to wrap around Alice's abdomen, and even though it was attached to nothing, held her above the floor. She thrashed and clawed and managed to cut herself loose, only to have two more scarves, cheap nylon this time, spin around and once more hold her suspended. Jack spun around, searching, looking. Where are you? He shouted above the Muzak, which now played Santa Claus's coming to town. Genie, Jack called to her, and then he saw her, small in her red dress and pink sneakers, her hair and pigtails. The only living resident 
prisoner in the forest of souls stood among a display of fake leather luggage. It was all fake, of course, the whole place. Everything in it was a prop, except for Eugenia Shade and Alice Barlow. Jack started toward his daughter, only to have her shout, No, you have to go, Daddy. I can't hold her. Hurry. For just a second, he hesitated. But he could see she was right. Alice was already pulling loose, and Jeanie was swaying with the effort to contain her. He ran to the watch counter, dropped to the floor, and frantically drew a threshold with the blue chalk. Then he used his knife to trace the form of a door in the air. Three of them appeared, lined up in a row, identical, except the one on the right bore the graffiti J.S. With his hand on the knob, he turned around. If he could somehow grab Jeanie before Alice broke loose, could he take her with him? But he'd already tried that once. More than once, and he and his daughter both knew the door would let him pass and no one else. Jeanie, he called out. Sweetheart, I'll find a way to bring you back. He had the door half open. He could even smell the oil and grease air of Empire Garage. When his daughter called to him, Daddy, she said in a voice that sounded like she was eight, Daddy, did I kill Mommy? No, baby, Jack said. It wasn't you. It was the Geist. And at that moment, Alice's fury broke loose to fly at him, and it was all he could do to slide through the door and slam it shut before Alice crashed into the back of it. Jack didn't realize he was on the floor until Barney reached down to help him up, and then the shock of that, Barney getting off his chair, helping him, touching him, shocked Jack back to where he was. Hey, Jack, Barney said. Looks like he had a rough time of it in there. Yeah, Jack said as he got to his feet. He looked down at his torn shirt and jeans, the bloody scratches and bites on his chest and arms. Holding his breath, he reached up to touch his face. His fingers came away with more blood on them, but he was pretty sure he was himself. You want to sit for a moment? Barney said. You look a little wobbly. He gestured with his head toward the gray metal chair against the wall. Jack smiled, surprised he could do it. He said, So, if I sit down, does this mean I become the doorman? And you wander off and, what, go get laid for the first time in a thousand years? Barney laughed. Ah, you wish, kid. You don't get to guard the door just by sitting in my seat. We've got standards. Barney, Jack said. You knew, didn't you? That's why you didn't recognize me at first. You saw the other face, overlaid on top of mine. Barney shrugged. Yeah, I saw it. Then why the hell didn't you tell me I almost died? Mm, not my job. What? Do you guys have some kind of union or something? Kind of like that. 
Barney said. Jack burst out laughing, then stopped, afraid he couldn't control it. Jesus, he said, I've got to get home somehow without attracting any cops or ambulances. Barney said, You can use the employee's locker room, sixth floor. There's a shower. I figured you might need a change of clothes, so I put out an Empire uniform for you. But don't worry, putting it on won't trap you into parking cars for all eternity. Jack smiled. Thanks, Barney. You're all right. Jack was at the stairway door when Barney called to him. He turned and Barney said, I've got something for you. Might come in handy. He tossed a small, bright object at Jack, who caught it in his right hand. When he looked in his palm, Jack saw it was a gold skeleton key, about three inches long. The head consisted of three flat circles, while seven short prongs formed the lock end. Jack stared at it for a long time. Finally, he looked up at Barney. Holy shit, he said. Barney's face turned hard, and when he spoke, the old man folksiness had vanished from his voice. Jack Shade, he said. You give that son of a bitch what he deserves. Jack stood across the street from William Barlow's house. It was early evening and Jack might have worried that Barlow would spot him, except it was Jack Shield time, and he was good at that. After cleaning up as best he could at the garage, Jack had not returned to the Hotel de Rev Noir. Long ago, he made it a rule not to go back until the job was finished, and this William Barlow assignment was a long way from over. So he'd gone to a small office he kept where he changed clothes, treated his cuts, and packed up a few supplies. Before he'd set out for Barlow, he'd spent a long time staring at the key. Could he use it for what he really wanted? Would it obey him? Or did Barney charge it for one purpose and one purpose only? He was half deciding to try it when Ray appeared in the small office, standing in the front door. Slowly, the fox shook his head. Oh, hell, Jack said. Yeah, I know. When he put the key back in his pocket, Ray vanished. Now he watched Barlow's McMagic Mansion and debated the best way to get inside. He imagined kicking in the door and catching Barlow in the act of sacrificing some small creature. In the end, he just muttered, Fuck it, and walked up and rang the bell. William Barlow opened the door, wearing a green sweatsuit and holding the New York Times auto section. The moment he saw Jack, his mouth fell open and he stepped backward. With his free hand, the left, he made a gesture to bar the threshold. Oh, William, Jack said, really? You think you can keep me out? He snapped his fingers, and a small capsule he'd been holding broke and scattered bright green powder in the air. The green flared as the powder absorbed the blocking spell, then fell dully 
to the floor. Barla's face visibly composed itself into a friendly smile. Keep you out? he said. Why would I do that? I've been waiting for you. What happened? Did you find Alice? Could, could you help her? Jack walked around him once, twice, counterclockwise, always keeping his eyes on Barlow, his face, his feet, but especially his hands. What are you doing? Barlow said. Why don't you tell me what happened? Is she... In the middle of talking, he brought his hand up for a blinding spell. Jack stiffened his fingers to dagger Barlow's hand, then kicked the man's legs out from under him. As Barlow fell, Jack said, You stupid son of a bitch! Do you think you can attack me? You may have been good enough to cloak what you were doing when you sent me to the forest, but in an open fight? I'm a traveler, Willie. Do you have any idea what that means? Barlow didn't try to get up. Lying on his side on the floor, he moaned, Please, I have no idea what you're talking about. Still, he said, still plain dumb Billy. Then let me tell you so you'll know it's too late. I'm going to guess something. In all your lies, there was one thing that was the truth. When you said you were supposed to go first, you could tell, couldn't you? Was it just your EKG, or did you find some blind seer? Hell, maybe you did a casting yourself. And there it was, William Barlow, dead in six months. Am I right, Willie? Barlow said nothing, and Jack went on. You just couldn't stand it. The great magician, the scholar, dead, and your slow, dumb wife gets to live. Get your money, too. Wasted on her stupid feel-good workshops? Please, Barlow said. It wasn't like that. I loved her. Sure you did, Willie. You just loved yourself a lot more. So you killed her. Took all that healthy life force for yourself. Barlow began to cry. Problem solved, Jack said. Only Alice started coming back. The forest appeared to you, all those voices, and one of them was hers. Did you imagine you could hear her? Was she calling your name? Please, Barlow said. I would have lost. Lost? You son of a bitch, I lost my wife and my daughter on the same day. My daughter killed my wife, and then I... He had to stop. His whole body was shaking. When Jack spoke again, his voice was hard and measured. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. 
Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Yeah, you didn't want to lose. All that great juju you'd built up wouldn't help you at all if Alice could get hold of you. You needed to get her off the scent. And what better way than to send in a substitute, a fake Billy, who would go right up to her and she could tear his throat out and go off all satisfied. He squatted down to put his face close to Barlow's. It was the water, wasn't it? I wanted to link us, you and me, so I could find Alice, but you charged the water so it would begin something else. Lay your face on top of mine, and then the dressing room. And that was to keep the link open, right? He stood up again and said, How long did it take to build up enough mojo to make it all work? Barlow said nothing. Jack kicked him in the ribs. How long? Barlow cried out then said, Three months. And God knows what you did in those three months to get yourself ready. A whole lot of nasty. Please, Barlow said. What What are you going to do to me? Jack grinned. Do, Willie? I'm not going to do anything to you. He watched the hope flicker in Barlow's face. Then Jack took out the gold key and held it up by its three-ring head. In the dim entryway. The seven prongs sparkled with their own brilliance. Jack said, Hey, magic boy, do you know what this is? For just a moment, Barlow stared at it, confused. Then he screamed. Jack nodded. Did your research, did you? Barlow scrambled backward along the floor until he bumped into a table along the wall. Please, he said, I can help you. I can give you things. I'll work for you. I've got money. I know things. Please. Jack said nothing, only took out his chalk and drew a blue threshold on the polished wood floor. Oh, my God, Barlow said. With his knife, Jack traced the outline of a door in the air. A faint image appeared, and when he held up Barney's key, an actual door appeared in the room. No rough garage metal this time, but proper suburban polished wood and frosted glass, with a keyhole rimmed in gold. Barlow gagged as if he was trying to scream but couldn't get it out. Finally, he cried, 
Shade, I'll give you everything. Oh, Willie, Jack said. Don't you get it? You don't have anything. You're finished. No, you're wrong. I can help you get your daughter back. Jack went up to him and for a long moment stared at Barlow's frantic face. You're a liar, William Barlow. A liar to the end. No, 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 I can do it, really. Jack wasn't listening. He shoved in the key harder than necessary, and for a moment worried it might have jammed. But no, the prongs meshed into the tumblers, which Jack knew were layers of reality. Entire worlds. The key turned and the world shifted into place, and when Jack opened the door, he saw darkness, lit only by the pale tendrils of fire. The whispers roared in the room nearly drowning out Barlow's desperate cries. When they died down, Jack could hear the mixed growls and laughter of the wild beast that once was Alice Barlow. He didn't stay to watch. There was nothing there he needed to see. He walked out of Barlow's house, leaving behind wild thrashing sounds and the smell of blood. When he got back to the hotel, Jack entered through the basement and went up in the service elevator to get to his room. He took a long shower, then sat on his bed even longer, trying not to think. Finally, he got dressed. A blue Oxford shirt, tan pants, and a blue silk jacket. He stared for a moment at the pile of black clothes lying on the floor, then left the room and went back out via the service elevator. He entered through the front door, and now, there in the lobby, stood the hotel owner, carefully setting roses one by one in a green vase. He watched her for a while, admiring the grace and economy of her movements in a gray wool dress. Hello, Irene, he said. She turned quickly with a bright smile. Jack, welcome home. She wore a small gold pendant of an owl he'd once given her on a thin gold chain. Would you like a drink? She sat down the final three roses in front of the vase. That would be wonderful, Jack said. In Irene's small office, with a glass of brandy before each of them, Irene said, Annette called. She asked me to invite you to a game in Philadelphia next Tuesday. Old-fashioned, she said, the way you like it. And then she said the oddest thing. I wrote it down to make sure I got it right. She picked up a small piece of paper. It was two things, actually. She said, blindfolds would not be necessary. Jack smiled. And she said, and she said to tell you she would prefer it if you would leave your fox at home. Jack stared at her for a moment, then burst out laughing. On September 17, 2004, the 14th birthday of one Eugenia Shade, a bottle of beer flew off the kitchen table and smashed itself against the wall. Eugenia's father, a traveler named Jack, sometimes called 
Carefree Jack, or Johnny Easy, had just told his daughter she could not drink beer, and so she laughed at the broken glass and the amber puddle on the floor. Over the following weeks, more and more things surrendered their stationary lives to take flight. A personal CD player smashed through a window. Chairs rearranged themselves in a wild dance. Any jar of food left out on the table or shelf was likely to destroy itself. Eugenia's mother, Layla Shade, originally thought some action of her husband's had backfired or worse. Some spirit he'd angered had invaded their home. No. Her husband told her it was Eugenia herself, or rather an energy configuration, a poltergeist that sometimes entered teenage girls. He told her their daughter was just an innocent host, but he knew it was more complicated than that. Geists, Jack knew, fed on the confusion, anger, and surging desires of adolescence. Eugenia wasn't doing it, but probably liked the fear and confusion she saw in her mother. Weeks, then months went by, and Layla begged Jack to do something. An exorcism, a spell, something. She hated being so nervous around her own daughter. Her husband assured her that geists were basically harmless, that teenagers almost always outgrew them, and that aggressive action might only make things worse. Not nearly as certain as he pretended, Jack secretly spent many hours online, especially in the Traveler's Archive, a collection of research and first-person accounts that once was stored in underground vaults. Pretty much all of it confirmed what he'd told his wife. Still, Jack went so far as to consult his old teacher, whom he'd not seen or spoken to in years. So the archives are right, he told her. I do nothing. Anatoly, as she was called, was a large woman with long, thick dreadlocks that coiled around her massive belly like protective snakes. Despite her size, she lived in a fifth-floor walk-up in Chinatown, in an apartment Jack always thought was too small for her, let alone a visitor. She agreed with his assessment, but then mentioned in an offhand manner, You might want to build up credit. Credit? Yes. A conditional vow in case you need help and don't have time to perform the necessary appeasements. If everything goes smoothly, you will have no need to invoke it. What kind of help? Jack asked. And help against what? Anatoly didn't answer. By her expression, she seemed to have lost interest in Jack entirely. Down in the street, outside grocery stalls filled with bitter lemon and gailan, Jack called his wife to tell her he had to go out of town for a couple of days. Layla was not happy. You're going traveling, she said, leaving me alone with this? It's not a job, Jack said. It's to get help. Layla was silent a moment, then said, So, if you do whatever it is, 
Will that stop it? Probably not. Or not exactly, but it will give us some insurance. Layla sighed. Come back as soon as you can, she said, and hung up. Jack rented a car and drove upstate to a place he knew in the woods. The site was not an original, but a cognate, a spot with the right configurations to stand in for a location where ceremonies were enacted thousands of years ago. There, he lit four small fires to mark out the action, but also because it was March and he would have to strip naked. Once his clothes were off, he used an all-black knife Anatoly once gave him to draw a cross in the dirt connecting the fires. Now he drew the knife down the center of his body, from his forehead to his groin. A charge ran through him, and he gasped in the chilly air. Setting aside the knife, he picked up a business card he'd designed for himself and a magic marker then stepped into the circle to lie down on the axis between the two largest fires. Beyond the circle, he could hear an owl, a deer crashing through some low branches, and a brief high-pitched cry that sounded like a woman's scream but probably was a coyote. He thought about what he was about to do, wondered if there was some other way. It was still likely the geist would just retreat and his vow would come to nothing. But if his daughter needed him... Jack Shade was a freelancer. Jack Choice, as another traveler once called him, liked to pick his cases, liked to turn away clients who annoyed him. It was one of the reasons he'd broken with Anatoly, who considered travelers servants of the soul. But when you ask for help, you have to offer something precious. He held the card up high in his right hand. I, John Marcus Shade, he said, make this vow in honor of my daughter, Eugenia Carla Shade. If she ever needs help, if she ever needs a path to open for her, I make this promise. From the moment I should invoke this vow, anyone who finds and brings this card may compel my service. I may not refuse them. I may not turn them away. I offer this for the sake of my daughter, Eugenia. May she never need it. May this vow never be invoked. Then he stabbed the card down onto his solar plexus. The fires all flashed high, then burned out at the same moment. Even as he lay on the dark, cold dirt, Jack realized he could not feel the card on his body. Too exhausted to drive further than the next cheap hotel, Jack got home the next day. The moment he stepped in the house, Layla ran up and grabbed his arms. Did you do something? she asked. Did it work? Nervously, Jack said, I did something, but we won't know. Not for a while. Layla pulled back from him. No, she said. You were supposed to fix this. I can't stand it anymore. Jack looked past her to see his daughter on the wooden stairs to the bedrooms. She was wearing a too tight halter top and too short miniskirt and spiked heeled sandals. 
everything her mother would have forbidden if Layla wasn't afraid of her. She raised her middle finger toward her mother, and then clumsily walked upstairs with an exaggerated sway of her narrow hips. They'd reached a dangerous stage, Jack thought. The poltergeist wasn't Jeanie, but she wanted to believe it was. She liked the power. Jack spent the night on the couch. When his wife told him she wanted to be alone, he did not contest it. He slept late, woken finally by the sound of his wife's voice, high and tight as she shouted at her daughter. Jack ran into the kitchen. The date was March 9, 2005. The first thing Jack saw was his wife, dressed in a blue sweatsuit, shouting at their daughter, who was laughing as she leaned back against the doorway to the dining room. Eugenia wore a red dress and neon pink sneakers, and then Jack ignored them, suddenly focused on everything else he saw in the kitchen, iron pots, large ladles, knives. Eugenia said in a sing-song taunt, Good morning, Daddy. Mommy seems all upset about something. Jack ignored her. Layla, he said, trying to keep his voice even. What are you doing? I'm making lunch, his wife shouted. I'm making lunch for my family in my own fucking kitchen. Jack said, we agreed. No, you agreed. You gave the order, the great shade, the traveler. I won't live like this anymore. My husband and my daughter don't get to boss me around in my own kitchen. Jack turned to Eugenia. In that same steady voice, he said, Jeannie, I need to talk to your mother. Please leave the kitchen. His daughter laughed. Whatever, she said, and moved from the doorway. Then, nah, I think I'll stay. And she went back to where she'd been standing. This is too much fun. Layla said, God damn it, do what your father says. I don't care what thing you've got inside you. You're 14 years old, and he's your father. If he tells you to do something, you do it. Please, Jack said. Later, he would wonder if he'd been speaking to his wife, his daughter, or the thing. It didn't matter. None of them was listening. A pot flew past Jack's head to hit the wall opposite the stove. Hot tomato sauce spilled down to cover a framed photo of the three of them at Disneyland when Eugenia was seven. Layla screamed. Eugenia jumped up and down and clapped her hands. Good one, she said. Let's see what else we can do. Jeannie, Jack cried. This isn't you. You can fight it. Why? She said, it's fun. Then the knives started. They came at Jack, all different sizes, end over end or straight toward him. He flailed his arms like a windmill, spraying blood even as he batted most of them away. It was the smaller ones that got through his defense. Two small paring knives and a long-tined fork caught his right jaw in the side of his neck. And then it was over. Jack was on his knees, his left hand pressed against his neck to staunch the blood. He saw his daughter first. She stood frozen in the doorway, 
ludicrous in her cheerful red dress, her mouth open, but unable to make a sound. He looked at her for a long time, afraid to turn his head. When he finally did, he saw his wife, and there she was, his beloved Layla, on the floor in a thick puddle of blood. The vegetable cleaver that lay next to her had cut right through her jugular. He crawled over to her and cradled her empty body. Daddy, Eugenia whispered. I didn't. It wasn't. I know, baby, Jack said. It wasn't you. It's not your fault, Eugenia said. Help me. I don't think I can hold it. The knives had begun to swirl around her legs a few inches from the floor. I know, Jack said again, his voice wet. He called out, I, Jack, shade, invoke my vow. I demand payment. Daddy, Eugenia said, what are you doing? Ignoring her, Jack said, take her somewhere, somewhere safe, where she can't hurt anyone. For months afterward, Jack would wonder, did he want what happened? Was he trying to punish her? He would lie in bed and try to bring back that exact moment. He could never decide. A door appeared in the room, stone unmarked. Oh, my God, Jack whispered. Then, no, that wasn't what I meant. Eugenia just stood there, looking up at the door that somehow stood taller than the room. Jack called out, Jeannie, get away from it. You don't have to go there. But she didn't move, and neither did her father. Though he fought to get up against an invisible hand that pressed him to the floor, even as he yelled to his daughter to run, the door swung open, and Jack heard the forest before he saw it. Wind first, then voices, swirls of hushed voices, as it opened wider, so that his daughter stood framed in clouds of trees. Jack tried once more to move, but now he couldn't even speak. Not to tell Eugenia to fight, not to try once more to take back his vow. He could only watch as his daughter walked, robot-like into the world of whispers. And then the door closed, and a moment later vanished, and he was all alone. Jack Shade, with his dead wife in his arms, Johnny Lonesome, on the floor of a kitchen covered in blood. Wow. Talk about a twist in the tale. Oh my God, I love that story. Thanks to Ms. Pollock for letting us run it. Thanks also to Larry Oliver for the great read he gave us. Don't forget to pop over to his SoundCloud and take a listen to what else he can do. As promised, we're finishing off today with a short piece by Amal El-Multar called Night of the Goblin Girl. Amal El-Multar is the Nebula Award-winning author of The Honey Month, 
a collection of poetry and prose written to the taste of 28 different kinds of honey. Her work has appeared in multiple venues online and in print, and she is a member of the Banjo Apocalypse Crinoline Troubadours Performance Collective. Love to see one of their shows. She lives in Glasgow with her partner, a harp, and two jellical cats. You can find her online at amalelmotar.com. The story is read for you by the same lovely lady who read last week's second story, Sarah Fredrickson. Sarah, who was born in Oregon and now lives in Australia, is an extremely talented narrator whom I hope we will be hearing a lot more from in the future. Thank you for your enthusiasm, Sarah. You rock. So, here we have it. Night of the Goblin Girl by Amal El-Muthar Gobdelin was pretty, in the way that goblin girls were, which is to say, a manner too profound and esoteric for human understanding. She had strong, splendid teeth and pleasantly kept fangs, which locked in a shapely fashion over her green lower lip. Her thick and exquisite hair was a corn-silk blonde that fairly blossomed from her head to her ankles, her bosom to her belly, her back to her bottom, and between her generously proportioned green toes. Her figure had all the grace of an expertly hewn stone brick. Many loved her, desperately. But Gobdelin was not the kind of girl-goblin to bat her eyelids at fawning suitors. In fact, few girl-goblins were, most being of the impression that goblin boys should be neither heard nor seen until they had something intelligent to say, which usually took at least a few years between utterances. Nevertheless, the time had come for her to marry, and her father, Gobbledygrans, was holding a contest for would-be grooms. Gobdelin herself, in conference with her father, had decreed the terms. "'The goblin who will win my heart,' she cried from atop her tower, "'shall be the one who can remain silent in the dense wood until I call his name.' and remain unseen in my room, even while he puts his arms around me. Anyone found to have sewn his lips together, or used an invisibility cloak, shall be disqualified. Well, most of the goblin boys left right there and then, muttering to themselves all the while. Goblin men love a good grunt, and are generally quite proud of the sight of their bulging green bellies, peering out from beneath their hairy shirts. And many were of the opinion that Gobdelin, while undoubtedly pretty, had set rather impossible terms. Still, there were those who would try. Gobbledygack, Gobbledygeek, and Gobbledygook were three brothers, all thought to be quite exquisite specimens of goblinhood. All wanted to try for Gobdelin's heart. Gobbledygack tried first. He was pretty clever. He closed his eyes and hid behind a tree and didn't speak, didn't speak at all, and waited for Gobdelin to call his name. He waited a while. He waited a long while. And then, sweet as the sound of flint striking against flint, came the sound of Gobdelin's voice. 
Oh, gobbledygook, come speak. Gobbledygook froze. His eyes grew wide. No, he shouted. You don't want him. Take me. And so was Gobbledygook disqualified. Gobbledygook had heard nothing about this, however, and so when his turn came to be silent, he was unprepared for Gobdelin's trickery. While biting his lip to keep from grunting, he heard Gobdelin's clear as lead pipes voice chiming prettily, "Oh, Gobbledygook, come back!" Well, Gobbledygook was furious. He let out a mighty goblin roar, crying, "No, Gobdelin, you don't want him!" But it was too late, and Gobbledygook was also disqualified. Now Gobbledygook, being younger than his brothers, was actually stupider than them, for all know that goblin boys only grow wiser with time, similarly to rocks. And so, being stupid, he didn't bat a goblin lash at the sound of Gobdelin's sweet as pickled herring voice when she called, "Oh, Gobbledygook, come speak!" For he merely thought, "Well, that isn't my name, and I can't speak until she calls it." And when Gobdelin's soft as hair shirt's voice called, "Oh, Gobbledygook, come back!" He thought the same, and then there was silence for a while. Finally, after two more nights and days, a very annoyed voice called, "Oh, come on out, Gobbledygook! You've passed the first test." And at that, Gobbledygook blinked, shrugged, and said, "Suits me," and came out of the dense woods. Now, for the next test, Gobbledygook wasn't sure what to do. He had to creep into Gobdelin's room, quieter than the quietest mouse, and slip his arms about her without being seen. Gobbledygook may have been the youngest of the three goblin brothers, but he certainly wasn't all that much smaller or less clunky than they. And so he, stupidest of the three. Tried very hard to be clever and think up a plan. Gobdelin, in the meantime, had everything worked out. First, she had booby-trapped all her windows with bells and whistles and buckets of paint, so that any one trying to creep in would be easily found out. She drank cup after cup of yerba mate, a ghastly goblin drink guaranteed to keep her awake all night. She made absolutely certain that there was no way to enter her room without her knowledge, no way that she wouldn't see the intruder, and then she waited. She waited. She waited longer. She watched the moon rise up in the sky and then sink. She waited longer still. She watched the sunrise. With baggy eyes, she wondered where on earth was that annoying gobbledygook. And then she fell asleep. Gobbledygook, stupidly, had been so preoccupied with thinking that he'd simply forgotten to go to Gobdelin's room at all. When he remembered, 
thanks largely to a rooster's crowing. He sighed, knowing there was nothing for it but to give up. So, up he trudged to her room in the highest tower, and pushed open the door, and then, tripping on a strategically placed roller skate, went sailing through the air and into Gobdelin's bed, where his arms instinctively wrapped around her sleeping, brick-hewn body. It was only then that she woke up, and, seeing that Gobbledygook had passed the final test, sighed loudly. "'I suppose we'll get married now,' she huffed, tossing her corn-silk hair. But Gobbledygook only blinked. "'What? M married But—but—' but, His eyes watered. "'But I'm too young to get married!' And he began to cry. Gobdelin frowned. "'You stupid goblin boy! Then why did you go through the tests?' Gobbledygook sniffled. "'You—you you said the winner would get your heart. I like hearts!' He snorted a great sniffly snort, and tried to dry his eyes with his big leathery hands. "'That's all I really want!' What kind of heart is it, anyway? A deer? A pig? A bear? And so it was that Gobbledygook won the very fairest of bear hearts in all the goblin land, while Gobdelin went on to have an immensely fulfilling career in public goblin relations before eventually inheriting the goblin throne by herself. She remains in her kingdom to this day with her cat, Thomas, and when asked about her love-life, simply shrugs and says that, yes, there is some truth to the rumours about her and the billy-goat's troll, but she'll cross that bridge when she comes to it. Oh, just fabulous. I love those names. Thank you, Amal. And that brings us to the end of this show. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Share and enjoy, but don't change or sell. And if you like what we bring you, you can write a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, tell your friends and family about us, or hum the theme tune in supermarkets and wait for people to ask you what it is. In the meantime, take it easy, keep smiling, and for that special person, your next favourite beverage is on me. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.